You're listening to Sunnyside Up, a B2B podcast that brings together real-world insights to help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we bring you the best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is transforming the way B2B companies go to market by enabling customers to embrace modern digital sales and marketing with a complete end-to-end suite of products. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sunnyside Up. I'm your host, Shubhank, and today I'm excited to talk to George Gatsis on the past, present, and the future of technology products. George, welcome to the show. How have you been? I'm doing great today. Thanks for having me. Awesome, George. Before we get on to the the topic and discuss about the technology products, I'd like to give a quick introduction about you to our audience. George has been in the edtech industry for over 25 years, working with the sales professionals, building turnkey software organizations and commercial software solutions. For most of this time, George has worked for Follett running the K-12 commercial platforms division, And this has allowed Josh to pursue his passion of driving culture and operational excellence, developing world-class teams, and creating award-winning software platforms. He has sat on several boards, including the Alliance for Learning and the Student Data Privacy Consortium, spearheaded the several acquisitions, and built strong customer relationships across North America. So, George, I have introduced you to the audience, and is there anything that you'd like to share about your journey so far? Uh, just that, that journey actually in software technology started about almost 15 years before joined Follett, uh-huh. where I, I joined the startup and before that worked with a couple of technology companies that were very big in the past and now are much, much smaller. But that's, so I have a, almost a 40 year history in software development. That is great. I think so. We are talking about almost, as you mentioned, the 40 years of experience or the 40 years of journey of a person who's been in this industry and seen the whole as the transition or the evolving of how the software or the product, I mean, software products have evolved in the last couple of decades. So that's awesome, George. So I think we can get onto the whole discussion or topic to understand what is your view and your insights about the whole technology products are. So as you mentioned, you've got about 40 years of experience in this industry. You've been a person who has actually kind of seen how how I think probably software used to be developed in the rudimentary levels and now what is happening right now with all the technologies in place. So could you take us through your experience in the past and how it used to be done before? Yeah, so when I started, actually when I started, we would develop programs on cards. So you know, where there was no microcomputers, no laptops, no desktops, just big mainframes. And you would feed thousands of cards into a reader and you would run your programs from that perspective. So that's kind of where I started. But, you know, the more interesting topic is when the microcomputers started coming out, the desktops, DOS was the operating system of choice. And at that point in time, I started developing software for desktop computers, and you would build them to fit on floppy drives. And if you were lucky, you had two floppy drives. If you were unlucky, you had one, and you had to swap out disks to run software. But what was interesting, Mm -hmm. it was in the very early, 
early days of developing software. There weren't any networks. Everything was localized on your machine. There wasn't anything like what we call the cloud today. And the expectations mm -hmm. were much different than they are today, especially around quality. So I like to call them kind of the dark ages of software development, where you could develop a product, it would be on these floppy disks, and this is pre the little hard drives. These are the five and a half mm -hmm. floppies I'm talking about. Correct. And basically you could show a customer software, the software would tend to crash every few minutes, <laughs> but the customer would still purchase it. So much different time than we have today. You know, then as we moved forward, things started to rapidly happen. I'm a believer of innovation happens in kind of a logarithmic time. Mm -hmm. So you're, you start out very slow and you, your curve of acceleration moves up into infinity which is where we're starting to get. But back before we were just on the starting points, things moved fairly slowly at first. This is before cell phones mm -hmm. and, and any of the modern technology we have today, any of the internet of things type capabilities. These were just big bulky desktops. And if you had a laptop, it was a lug top in that it fit into a, more of a suitcase than in, you know, sliding into a, a little briefcase that we have today. And so as we moved forward, we started to get more into process, this thing called the waterfall model. Mm -hmm. And that was fine for the time because things didn't change that quickly then. So when you first started waterfall and you spend all this time building requirements, and then proofing your requirements, and then developing your requirements, testing all these separate kind of phases of development, mm -hmm. it was okay for a while because the technology wasn't changing from day to day or week to week. Mm -hmm. It would change over a period of years. So that tended to work. But as we move closer to the year, to the 2000s, that innovation was catching up to us and there was a lot of problems with the waterfall model in that these requirements that you may spend two or three months developing and then implementing over anywhere from a six month period to an 18 month period by the time you finished things would have changed dramatically in your requirements and the needs from the customer and the technology and so right around 2002 or so, we had this event called the Agile Manifesto. Mm -hmm. And when that occurred, a group of thought leaders in the industry got together and decided that we could develop software differently. Now, I was had just started at Follett at that time, and I had a group of, oh, about 20 developers in my group. And we were having trouble. The company had grown considerably and was about 30 million or grown rapidly. Yes. And when I joined the company, it was basically a bit of a mess. So, you know, I was looking for methods to improve quality because what, you know, a decade before would pass wouldn't pass anymore. Yes. I, I sort of look at it as 
you know, in the old days with cars and tires before radials and people who drove in those days, you would change tires almost every day. So in my lifetime, I've changed 50 to 100 tires. Today, with radials, the quality has improved and people don't even know how to change tires and the spare tires are disappearing because they're no longer needed. You got the same type of thing happening with technology where quality was, was demanded, whereas before anything would pass. So as we moved into Agile, Agile, some of the early methods of Agile pre-Scrum were things called extreme programming, mm. which was a very, people would look at it and say Agile was not a process, but in, in essence, it was a very distinct process that was just very honed mm -hmm. and meant to cycle quickly. So we started into this whole world of having daily meetings, of doing work, of not putting in hooks and things that we would plug things in down the road because the technology would change. And this agile movement really started to revolutionize software development, allowed things to be developed in a much more fast pace. But if you didn't follow the process, you had all sorts of issues with technical debt, with defects, you know, the same types of things. You know, if the process isn't used and isn't followed the way it's meant to be followed, you can fall into some of the traps and just do uh, generate errors more quickly than you could in the past. So, you know, those are some of the roots that started to come out in the year 2000. And since then, we've moved really past Agile now. Agile is really thought to be a basis, a given. And, you know, people do stand-ups. Agile, the word Agile has moved out of software into everything having to do with business. One of the issues there is it's also moved into, and it can be considered now to be ad hoc. So some people look at the A in Agile means ad hoc and where it really isn't. So we, we can fall into some of the same traps that we were doing 20 or 30 years ago as we continue to accelerate. This is interesting, George. I was trying to kind of visualize how, how your experience would have been or how the team would experience earlier in terms of development. And you mentioned a few of those interesting points that we can actually connect to. And the first thing is that they were, I mean, all the softwares were being uploaded on a floppy disk probably like one or two disks in the earlier and it could it would crash often and later probably you said in the early 2000s is when we actually kind of moved towards an agile platform or let's say agile workspace which actually helped easen up all the kind of processes of software development and product development and stuff so i would like to ask do you think that was i mean that was one of those initial stages or initial phases that you felt that there has been a huge transformation happening in the product development industry? Or is there anything else that you could actually kind of say that, okay, this was one of the reasons where actually, which impacted towards the innovation of this kind of uh, product development phase altogether? Yeah, so, you know, a key thing is right around the year 2000, we talk about the dot-com bubble mm -hmm. in that time frame and the internet 
was a was a huge development. We used to describe wide area networks, as I recall, as being large and slow. <laughs> and slow was part of the definition versus these smaller networks, which were described as fast. Well, the internet changed all those things. Web development changed all those things. And you know, when with the years 2000, 2001, 2003, we started to build based on, on the web. We moved away from this client server architecture to a web-based architecture. Languages like Java, which were brand new then, are now considered ancient in the scheme of things, started to be developed. And, you know, instead of putting your stuff locally on your machines where hard drives all of a sudden appeared in you know the 90s so to speak in the 90s time frames you know the disk space was unlimited so if you go back to the year 2000 there was a lot of scrambling done on all these applications and we used to do things like how much could you fit in a byte of space right mm-hmm. how many how can you you know, we used to redefine how we we would store a date, for instance, so that we can get the most out of the space. Because again, we were limited, very limited in size. When hard drives came out, they were limited at 10 meg. If you had a 10 meg hard drive, you were living in, you were living large, so to speak. And so that focus all just kind of went out the door when the internet came. And all of a sudden, disk space kept growing. It kept getting cheaper and cheaper. And then the internet, and today with cloud, we don't even think about disk space. Now, we're paying for it, but what we're paying for was unheard of in the past, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years before. Cool. we would You would have paid an astronomical amount for the stuff that's on my, on my phone today. <laughs> That is right. I mean, that's totally kind of relatable because even while I started using my initial system, so I remember having probably the space of about, say, a 1 GB, if I'm not wrong, or probably around 500 MB or something of that sort. So we've evolved a lot in the last 20, 25 years, and it's been a fast transition or fast evolution that we have seen. And I'd like to understand about the kind of experience you've had around the teams, Josh, because... You know, when, when the technology evolves, the first thing that we normally see is a resistance to the change from the resources. So there could have been a lot of new technologies that was brought into picture that could actually reduce the, the resource counts or it, it required the resources to kind of upskill themselves. What was what was your thought initially when, I mean, like when, when a lot of new technologies were being brought into the picture? And what was the kind of effects or the kind of responses your team had for all these things? Yeah, so, you know, engineers, that's a great question. Engineers continue to look at and talk about new technology, right? The newest things, you know, I want to I wanna move from C to C++ to Java, to Ruby on Rails, to PMP, to Angular, to et cetera, right? But at the heart of it, people, engineers are the same. On one side, they want the newest and the greatest. On the other side, they don't want anything to change. 
So these things are in are diametrically opposed with people. And early on, I used to think that programmers, and I started out as a programmer, that programmers wanted change at all times. And early on, I figured out that pretty quickly that programmers, engineers, just like everybody else, don't really want change. They want things to stay the same. Mm -hmm. And in the scheme of things, the languages are tools, right? The technology is tools. And in order to build software, it's all about the people. So as I got more and more involved and I, I moved into management positions, even though I had a technical title, my role was to manage people and to manage culture. <laughs> and essentially to work with people, increase productivity, which you could use tools to do that. But the tool set had to, what had to happen first was it had to be around process, around techniques, around capabilities, because if those things weren't in place, then new tools would just accelerate what you were doing before. So if you were generating a lot of defects and a lot of issues with, with your software, a lot of rework, et cetera, new tools would just accelerate the amount of rework you would need. So it, it really, in this day and age, it really falls back to the people. You know, these new tools and techniques can be learned. And with the speed that things are changing as we get into machine learning and things like blockchain, et cetera, right. these things are changing almost on a daily basis. So we need to really invest in our people to push them to learn new things and to really get out of their comfort zones as we go. So, you know, if you're a, if you're a CTO or a development manager, director today, mm -hmm one of your main goals is to get people to get out of their comfort zones and to get uncomfortable with this new technology that keeps coming at us or what you're building will be obsolete and we saw that in you know when we first built a lot of web-based products you know this goes back 20 years now and many of those stacks are still in play right there in, in the current scheme of technology, they would be considered ancient, right? If they were people, they would be in their 90s on life support, right? But we're still using these old stacks and trying to make them to continue to sing to new songs and new capabilities. And, you know, with software, as a manager, you know, you have to really work with your management to make them understand funding around technical debt, around replacing old parts of your technology, because we don't have the luxury anymore if you're an established company of just stopping development on your stack and building something brand new. We could do that 20 years ago, and, and I did that, but since then, you had to continually modify, update your your stacks, your source code. Before we started the call, you and I talked about the fact that technology with the cloud, for instance, 
And if you're using AWS or you're using Azure, yeah. there's a, a wealth of tool set that just didn't exist 20 years ago. And these legacy products come with all this baggage mm -hmm. in these archaic, you know, platforms. And I call them archaic because they all software, I, I like to say, starts out elegant and it all ends up ugly. <laughs> because you got developers going in and changing things, tweaking things, fixing things. And it just, it just gives you this, what we used to call spaghetti code and this jumbling that you need to have some really focus on what you're doing to ensure that your stack grows and, and doesn't just mature, but it gets reinvented along the way. I was trying to um, completely kind of grasp all those details that you actually kind of mentioned right now. The way you actually gave us a reference to how the technology could be considered in the 90s and how it could be related to the kind of way we perceive about the older ages. So I think that's, that's totally relatable. I'd say next point I was coming to is, is about the, let's say, the blockchain and the AI that we have right now. There's a lot of thing happening around machine learning and artificial intelligence today. And with the blockchain in the place, there has been a lot of research that has already got in the picture. And a lot of lot of companies have already kind of invested a lot in this new technology. You've given us a good amount of idea about the past and the kind of a little bit of the present. So what do you think is the future going to be about, Josh? Like, I'm pretty sure because previously when I was talking to you, you gave me a good amount of insights. So I'd like to understand with the current improvements or the innovations that are in place with all these technologies, what do you think is going to be like the journey of technology in the next 10 years? And what could be the threats or what could be the kind of other insights that you can actually think of? Yeah, no, so we'll, we'll use that decade, 10 years, but that could happen in five years just based on how quickly things are changing I think it's, you know, I remember when I was flying a lot, and of course now people are starting to fly again. I haven't gotten on a plane in over a year, but when I was flying a lot and I remember watching, all of a sudden I'm looking around me and people are watching movies on their phones, mm -hmm. right? And, and a year before, I would have never thought that would happen. And I'm looking around and, you know, how quickly the phone has turned from being a phone to being this communication device, this texting device, whatever you want to call it. That is acceleration of technology. So now we're looking at really the early days, really is the early days of AI and machine learning. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people know this, but there's different, there's five different, what I've heard called different tribes around AI and different techniques mm -hmm. about different ways to approach AI. And so people keep looking at robotics delivering. So for AI to really deliver on being able to have a robot that's a maid, you know, that could cook, that can clean, that can think through all those things, they really have to use... There, there has to be a unifying theory around AI because right now there's these five different theories that focus on different things and do different things very well. But in order for us to really get past that with like this robotic, a robot period, 
we need to be able to unify all those because they all those different theories around AI and applications have to come together. So that's probably going to happen in the next, I don't know, six months, 12 months, 18 months. And once that happens, we'll see a, a new burst of the AI capabilities where, you know, right now, if you have AI, it does one thing very well. This will allow AI within an application and the same technology to do multiple things very well. So we're going to see that and it's going to explode. I think if you're developing software today mm -hmm. and you aren't actively putting machine learning, artificial intelligence capabilities into it, then you're living in the past. That is just the the way the world's going to be. And as we go further, it'll be really interesting to see what this AI capability does to the programming industry itself. Will it revolutionize it from the idea that artificial intelligence can start building some of these, these code base? And some of these things, we used to call them third, fourth, fifth generation software development environments. Will those things actually become reality? You know, just like if we look at some things, for instance, in the medical community where you now have computers reading x-rays better than people can read them, right. et cetera, those types of things. Or you have... You know, if you look at lawyers, lawyers are very good at reading case studies. Well, if you have machines that can read all that case study and intelligently interpret it, those industries are going to be reborn. So that's one thing that's a big, big question mark. But until that point, it all comes down to working with people because people are writing all this software. And people tend to make mistakes. So you have to put in checks and balances and different things to keep the complexity under, under wraps so that you can actually achieve building some of these great systems that we have that are seem very simple on the outside, but are very complex underneath the hood, so to speak. Now, if you look at things like blockchain, that's exploding in the marketplace today. And... So if you look at where that's going, well, everything's going to be distributed everywhere around the world, right? It brings up all sorts of new questions just around access, around costs, right? Right now, it's, it's slowly building because it's, quite frankly, a little bit more costly to build something in blockchain. You need more resources, but that's quickly going to go back to the wayside and we see blockchain infiltrating again into everything that we're doing and you know so those things are going to become synonymous currency you know i wonder about that quite a bit also is are we going to go to uh you know blockchain based currency because we're already starting to see credit card companies accepting those things payment companies and all these things are going to become more rapid and rapid so you know, they start to talk about the whole body of knowledge changing in a period of hours versus a period of years. This idea of knowledge workers is going to be defined as people who can access new knowledge and apply it. 
versus I know this programming language or I know this procedure as a doctor, those procedures, those languages can change overnight. So, I mean, it just, it's kind of mind boggling when you think about it. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I was having a smile listening to the way you were kind of giving all the insights about how the future could look like. And honestly, yeah, that is that is totally possible with looking at the kind of innovations that are happening today on a daily basis. It's not even like, as you mentioned, the years to get them. Every day, everything is changing. There's something on the new that we can actually look in the market. I mean, we can actually find in the market that actually makes a huge difference in the lifestyle and stuff. George, I think this is great to understand about the blockchain and the current technologies and what this could mean in the future and how it could actually impact. One important element that you might have actually faced is you're saying that there has been, I mean, there was a lot of, I'd say, resistance to the change in the early 2000s. And probably, as you mentioned, developers or I'd say the technology people would actually kind of resist to be to, to a lot of changes that are happening in the environment. But pandemic so i'm pretty sure that i've spoken to a lot of leaders like you and i put this question to them the last two years or probably the early 2020 was actually the most challenging part of any leader in this industry they had to kind of figure out a lot of changes that were happening around and they had to make sure that the team kind of settled down in the right manner to get the highest efficiency how was your experience around all these things george yeah so you know but one of the big changes happened with remote workers, right? All of a sudden, people who were working in an office were working at home, right? And big questions came up, you know, how do we know people are actually working? You know, how do we know that they're productive? You know, and it really, what what I always found interesting is these are questions of trust, Mm -hmm. which go back to culture. Now, my own experience is, I was working in an environment where we had allowed people to work remotely at their choice, you know, up to five years before. So I had seats in my organization and my development part of my organization for 200 developers. And on any particular day, maybe 20 of them would be in the office. Right. So we were we were already very much into remote working. We had measurement figured out. You know, we had productivity figured out. And but I was working in an environment that was a corporation that had I had the technology part, but there were people who were working in print company. I was with Follett produced a lot of books or resold a lot of books. And this was all new to them. And what always I found interesting is people just assumed nobody knew what was going on and they never really paid attention. So, you know, some of in the technology and the software arena, some of these agile practices around daily standups, around, you know, reporting your work in these short sprints, Really, if you're doing those things and you're you're really following a defined process, right, which should be very simple, not yeah. a complex process, an agile process, then you already have those measurements at your disposal. 
if you have a developer who through a whole one week sprint doesn't produce anything, it's pretty telling that they're not, you know, that they're either stuck because they don't understand what they need to do or they're not doing the work, right? So these practices have helped companies that were allowing the telecommuting, which is what we called it at the time, as opposed to remote working, if they had those things in place, my experience was we just slid into this COVID period, right, that we've Mm -hmm. been living through for the last almost two years, where we already knew we were already measuring remote productivity. And it all has to do with communication channels. And it has to do, again, with your culture, right? If you want a culture that supports remote working, that supports innovation, that supports productivity, those are things that the culture has to support at all levels of the organization. And if your leadership doesn't live those rules, you know, or live that culture, then that is not the culture they have. They have some other culture that may not be as productive or may not meet all the needs. So again, it really comes down to fundamentals in business that these things work, whether people are sitting in front of you or they're sitting at home during the work, there's a level of trust that you give to people. And if you trust people and if, you know, and don't get me wrong, you don't just trust people. You have different areas where you can measure accountability and you need to be really careful that you're measuring the right things because if you measure the wrong things, you get different results, right? So, but if you have trust and you have productivity, accountability, measurement, then, you know, working from home, working in an office, it's irrelevant where you are. You can still have a high-performing team and still hold your team accountable, or rather, the team holds itself accountable, right? So you push decisions down. It's, it's, it's again, fundamental management techniques that, you know, go back many, many years before I was in the business world. Again, What's happened is the pace of change has really accelerated. So these things are more and more important than they were, because if you don't have them in place, things can have disastrous results. And that is absolutely right. I mean, when you mentioned culture, I think that is one of the, one of the most apt points that we can actually consider for any company to kind of make a change and let's say, a transition towards what is actually required in the current situations. So I think that's totally right, George. I think this has been amazing, let's say, conversation with you. And there's so many things that I got to learn as well as I believe the audiences are going to get a great deal of thought from your end. George, as you know, we are towards the end of the show. And there are a few questions that I normally ask all our guests. So the first thing is that, is there any book, blog, or newsletter that you kind of refer to and that you recommend our listeners to keep a track of? Yeah, so there's, you know, there's there's all sorts of resources out there that are very good anymore. But I, I still go to some of the old, what I call classic business books. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll name two of them because they're, they've both been very key in different ways. Now, these aren't process books. These are organizational books. One is called Good to Great. I think 
a lot of your audience knows that book by Jim Collins. Mm -hmm. You know, the other books by Jim Collins, he's written three or four or five of them are all great reads, very easy reads and very much have a lot of insight. And his insight is very simple when you think about it, you know, building organizations and cultures, it's not complex. It is more, I would say, rigorous. And so Good to Great has great keys in there. Another one is Leading Change by John Cotter. Another really, these are very easy reads, Mm -hmm. but, you know, they have very insightful on what you should be looking at. And they tend to both look at the soft skills, you know, what they call emotional intelligence is really what I see ruling the day in business. So those are our two resources. If you haven't read them, I would advise strongly that you read them if you're in a management position. Sure, George. I think I've also noted down the names and names of the books. So I'll, I'll keep a track of it and try to get the copies on the Kindle as well at the earliest. And the next question is, George, like any three people you'd like to give a shout out to in your network, professional network? Yeah. One is a gentleman who I consider my mentor. Mm -hmm. When I worked for a startup before Follett, he was the starter of the startup. His name is Girish Sashagiri. Just everything Mm -hmm. I've learned essentially takes from a business and a life perspective outside of my growing up in my family really stems to this gentleman, Girish. And then two people I worked with over the years, one lady named Kim Wheeler and technologist named Tim Rogers, both very astute and intelligent and people who understood how to build businesses. That is awesome, Dot. These are the people that you and I'd like to kind of bring them on the show as well. So let me see if I can get in touch with them. And uh, the last question that we're coming towards the end is that there are so many questions. There could be so many questions with the audiences when they're listening to this show. And they might want to kind of get in touch with you to kind of get some your thoughts about what they feel. So, so how do you suggest people can actually get in touch with you after the recording? Yeah, so, you know, two key ways. One is just LinkedIn. My name is, at least in the U.S., is fairly unique. Not so much if you go to Greece, but can look up George Gatsis, send me a message, connect with me, or just email me at G as in George, J as in John, and my last name, Gatsis, G-A-T-S-I-S, at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from people. These topics are, you know, love to hear if you agree, you disagree, other, other ideas you have are more than welcome. Awesome, George. Thank you for being on the show and giving us the time to talk about your experiences and sharing your knowledge. It's been a great time talking to you, George, and I really enjoyed having you on the show today. Any quick thoughts before we end the show? No, I've just, I've really enjoyed the discussion today. You know, for people out there, keep thinking around your culture. And, you know, if your culture changed a lot with remote learning, you know, you really need to pay attention to it because it it really is the basis of everything that your organization does. Awesome. I think that's a good input or I'd say the good insight towards the end of the show. Again, Josh, thanks so much for being on the show. And I look forward to being in touch with you over LinkedIn and discussing a lot about the future that's going to be in the coming years. Thanks again. Have a great day. You too. 
Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV. 